How would you live life if you truly believed that God loved you personally? This is Nita Erlene, and you are listening to the TRC Ministries podcast. The vision of TRC Ministries is to see individuals fulfill their calling under the authority of the Church, using the resources of the Kingdom of God. In order to understand and accept the life that Jesus offers us, we first need to understand and accept that He loves us. In this episode, Tori Bjorklund, President of TRC Ministries, shares more in depth from his story on how he came to believe that God did not love him and the truth from God's Word that changed his mind. May it encourage you to understand more fully God's love and redemptive work in your own life. Here is Tori continuing his teaching at Caravan Fellowship in Part 7 of Putting on the Easy Yoke. morning everybody I've been going through a little series here this series is based on the 12 steps of AA and and celebrate recovery Alcoholics Anonymous and celebrate recovery and um, I want to read this I've been talking about step two we came to believe that a power greater than ourselves could restore us to sanity and the verse that Celebrate Recovery puts with that is, For it is God who works in you to will and to act according to his good purpose. Philippians 2.13. And just by way of real brief review, last time, two weeks ago, I had two main points that I tried to put across. One is, I've quit trying to convince people that their life is out of control because my experience is that most people know that, and they're looking, they, they, they're looking for the answer already, and I don't need to work too hard at that. And the flip side of that is, if they don't want to admit it, there isn't much I can do to convince them otherwise. And so basically, I'm looking for that soil that's prepared. When we talked about the sower and the four different types of soil, I'm looking for those who want to hear the word. They're, they're waiting for that word. And I remember myself in that position. The second thing is that not everybody, now let me put it this way, I myself did not have trouble believing that God was capable of uh, restoring me to sanity, if you will, using that, that term, was capable of intervening and doing something in my life. My biggest struggle was believing that he would that he was willing to, that he loves me, that he valued me, that I was worth anything. And the example of where my mind was at is when this young man, Tom Heidinger, bless his heart, was reaching out to me with the gospel when he said, when he suggested that I turn my life over to God, my response was, Believe me, Tom, God does not want this life. That was my mentality, that God did not want me. Not that he wasn't able to. He certainly could if he wanted to. So I want to talk a little bit about how I got to that position and the conclusions that I reached that reversed that. Because I believe that the church in general is full of hurting people who are struggling with some of these same issues 
and it really affects our faith. And I know even within this small group that there are people that are, are struggling just to believe that God values them. They know it in their mind, but they keep acting as if God doesn't want to hear from them again, that they're a failure, that, that God is disgusted with them, things like that. Or with people that they love, or you know, just that general idea. So I want to just share a quick two stories, um, but I want to share a list, a brief part of my story. I was raised in a, in a Christian home. We were in church all the time. My dad was a deacon back in the kind of church that I went to. Um, the deacon sat up front behind the pastor on Sunday morning. So, And then my dad also led the singing, the music, and then he also conducted the choir. And my mom played the piano or the organ, depending on whether we had an organist or a pianist already. And we were there all the time. I was raised in the church. But there came a point when I was 11 years old that, and of course, I did not know everybody's childhood is normal, right, to them. And I did not know that there was a lot of stress and strife in my household. And um, there came a point where my mom decided that she really just couldn't take it anymore and decided to leave. And uh, so between my 11th and, uh, my, I was 11, but right around my 12th birthday, um, my mom left. And then my dad, who grew up in Minnesota, packed us older kids up. And, and you know, this was over a period of time, as you can imagine, anybody that's been around with the middle of divorce and all of that, I mean, it's a long drawn out process. So it wasn't an overnight thing. But eventually my younger brother and sister went to live with my mom and us older boys went with my dad and we moved to Minnesota. And then my dad got involved in a relationship with a young lady who's now my stepmom. And, and we didn't get along well. And I remember sharing with my dad that we didn't get along well. And my dad, you know, he was looking forward to the fact that there was a point at which us kids were going to be gone. And he shared this with me. You know, my oldest brother, Tim, had been gotten married now and moved out. And my other brother, older brother, Gary, was leaving soon. I was 14. It wouldn't be long before I left. And he'd be alone. And he wanted to marry this lady. And he explained that, that you know, eventually I'll be gone, and, and so um, he wanted to have her in his life. Well, my 14-year-old brain heard that as, she's more important to me than you are. And so I had come through a period where I came to believe that my mom, you know, basically cast us off and um, abandoned me, and my dad now was rejecting me, and so I decided to leave home. And my brother, older brother, had run away a few times, and I'd, my dad would always call the authorities. And I remember one time, and they were all the way in South Dakota, the, the sheriff there had somehow found them there, and they got, he got sent back. And I asked my dad, why don't you just let him go? He's going to run away again. 
And he said, well, because if he doesn't get an education, if he doesn't finish school, his life is going to be really difficult. And I want him to, to at least be able to finish school. My brother, older brother, ended up going into the Navy rather than finishing school. He got his GED. But I, I decided, well, if I'm going to leave, I need to work out a way so I could stay in school. And that's what I proposed to my dad. If I leave, if I can stay in school, do I have to live at home? And he agreed that I didn't have to live at home. I could leave as long as I stayed in school. And I worked out a plan. There was a man who was willing to take me in, and I met him at my dad's church. And what I didn't realize was that he was a pedophile and that the reason he was willing to take me into his home was because then he could abuse me. And, and I was in a situation where I, I didn't want to go back home. I didn't know what to do as a 14-year-old boy. You're, it's hard to find a place to live on your own. Um, and I stayed in that situation for nine months and eventually left there. And um, I moved down to Arizona, tried to live with my mom. She was in the midst of a lot of turmoil at that time. Um, and throughout all of this time, I be had begun, when I was 12, I started using drugs and alcohol. And so throughout all this time, it got worse and worse and worse. So by the time I was 17 years old and living on my own in Phoenix, I had really concluded that, you know, my own parents didn't love me. I remember my oldest brother one time saying, Tori, you're just feeling sorry for yourself. And my response was, well, yeah, because nobody else feels sorry for me. That was my sense. It was me against the world. And so in this state of mind, when I had gotten very messed up and in the midst of uh, a couple of felony charges and seven misdemeanors and waiting to go to trial for that. This man, Tom, suggested that since my life was out of control, maybe I should give my life to God. And I had concluded that God wanted nothing to do with my life. Now, I just want to pause there and tell you another story, another true story. This was in 1987. The uh, Sun Sentinel, and uh, also appeared in the Atlanta Journal-Constitution in May 1987. Um, there was a man by the name of Rob Cutshaw. He owns a little roadside rock shop. He's a rock hound. He finds rocks and he sells them uh, in North Carolina. And uh, he knows just about enough of the rocks to decide which ones to pick up and which ones not to but he's not an expert. He enjoys his work, but it doesn't make a lot of money. Sometimes he has trouble paying his bills. So one time, he and his high school buddy, Harold Roper, had found a rock he described as purdy and big. He tried to sell this unsuccessfully. And according to the Atlanta Journal-Constitution, he kept the rock under his bed or in his closet he figured that the blue chunk would bring about $500, but he couldn't get $500 for it, so he decided just to hang on to it. There were several times when he was having trouble paying his bills, 
and he thought, maybe I should just sell this. Maybe I should take less than 500 for it. And um, he came very close to selling it for a few hundred dollars, but later found out, and he was glad that he didn't, that it happened to be the, most, the largest and most valuable sapphire that was ever found. It's now known as the Lone Star Sapphire. It weighs two pounds, and according to the Guinness Book of Records, it's the largest star sapphire ever recorded. It's 9,719 and a half carats. Imagine a 9,719 and a half carat sapphire. Some claim it could easily sell for several million dollars. So I want you to think about this sapphire. Um, I don't know if he ever sold it. I don't know if it's, uh, you could probably find it online, find the information there. But this man had no idea of the value of this sapphire that he had. And he was not talking to the right people about the value of that. And when he would go to try to sell it and somebody say, and he'd say, I'll, you know, I'll take 500 and they'd say, I'll give you 300 for it. We don't know if those people knew it was worth millions. He's talking to the wrong people, wasn't he? Now, there are experts that understood these things, that when it was valued, it was valued at several million dollars. But I want to use this as an analogy of myself and others that are in this position of not recognizing the value and the worth that God places on us as individuals. We are kept in, under the bed and in the proverbial closet believing we have very little value, not willing to cast ourselves away entirely, but hearing the voices from our childhood and from our culture that say you have no value, you have no worth, and we're listening to the wrong voices. Last week I had you, or two weeks ago, uh, do a little exercise. And I asked a few questions. Do you struggle with self-worth? Can you identify where you got the idea that you are unloved or unlovable? And how have you dealt with these messages of worthlessness? It took me a long time to identify the fact that I felt and believed I was cast off and abandoned by my mother, that I came to believe that I was rejected by my father. These were things that they had no intention of. It wasn't their intent, but this was the interpretation that I wasn't even aware of. But these were the voices that I was using to value my life. And it wasn't the truth. So what establishes worth or value? What somebody is willing to pay. Now, Naomi watches the antique road show and they got these experts and they say we'll you know we'll estimate it's you could get x amount of dollars or we recommend that you insure it for x amount of dollars but it isn't until somebody says I will give you x amount of dollars that truly establishes the worth and you see Jesus recognized that people 
were struggling with their worth before God. You might remember in Luke chapter 12, Jesus posed this question. He said, isn't five sparrows sold for two cents? Yet not one of them is forgotten before God. Some of the translations said, not one sparrow falls to the earth without God. Without God knowing and being there. And then he follows it up with this. Indeed, the very hairs of your head are all numbered. What does that mean? Why is that significant? The thing that I want to point out about that is this is individual. This is specific and applies to you. The number of hairs on Jason's head is different than the number of hairs on Jerry's head. The point being that God is intimately involved in us as individuals to the very last detail. And then Jesus adds this last thing. Do not fear. Do not fear. You are more valuable than many sparrows. He was making a joke in a way that was, gets people to think. You can buy five sparrows for two cents. How many sparrows are you worth? Don't be afraid, little ones. God values you immensely. That's his point. God values you immensely. You are worth so much that God was willing to pay the ultimate price. That's our receipt. The death of Jesus Christ, the atonement, as Paul puts it in in Romans chapter 3, the propitiation of sins. The payment in exchange for us was paid by God, and that is a receipt that proves the value he places on us. So Romans 5.8 says this, God demonstrated his love toward us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. You see, it isn't just the righteous that God loves. See, this is what we struggle with. Why did I think that God didn't want me? Well, you know, there were messages in my childhood that I, that I believed about my personal worth. And I projected that on God. But not only that, I was also aware of the things that I had done. There was a tremendous amount of shame in my life. I was so filled with shame. As I'm older now and I realize how much I had been taken advantage of and abused by this man that took me in, I felt tremendous amount of shame and responsibility for what had happened to me. And part of that was because I had done many things that were wrong that led up to my being ensnared. I wanted to be in a position where somebody would provide alcohol 
I wanted to be in a position where somebody would provide a place where I could have parties to bring my friends. I wanted to be in a position with a man that would provide uh, pornography and, uh, and allow me to bring women over and things like that, or girls. My heart was wrong and it allowed me to become ensnared and I put all, brought all of that shame and then think about, does God really want anything to do with me after all of that? And the message in the Bible here is that God allowed his son, Jesus Christ, to die on behalf of people who have done those things and worse. And it's a demonstration. It's the certification of the value that God places on a person. Ephesians 2 says, Because of his great love for us, God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive with Christ, even when we were dead in transgressions. It is by grace you've been saved, and God raises us up with Christ and seated us with him in the heavenly realms in Christ Jesus, in order that in the coming ages he might show the incomparable riches of his grace expressed in his kindness to us in Christ Jesus. You may still believe this unlovable lie. I know it's something that I struggled with and still do on occasion. You may believe that God has forgiven you, but you don't have the faith to believe that God truly loves you. And God took me through a journey of truth that helped me realize the reason Jesus said he has the hairs on your head numbered was he was trying to express that this is a very, very personal thing. God personally chooses to love each and every single one of us. Sometimes that message gets lost in God so loved the world. We think of it as there's this global thing that God is doing, but we're insignificant. And if he actually focused on us, you know, we would be the, the little fish that he, you know, throws out of the nice catch, that we would not be worthy. But God focuses on us so much individually that he knows the numbers of the hair on our head. I mean, that it's not like we get lost and we happen to maybe get saved because we're part of the world that God loved. No, we are an individual that God purposefully created individually, wove us together in our mother's womb and brought us into this world for the purpose of interacting with him in a personal way. And he has chosen to love every single one of us. I don't have time to really bring home the main, the, the weight of that to the degree that I'd like to. But I think I want to read this passage from uh, Ezekiel. Because, you know, if you're like me or you know people like me that really struggled with just how seemingly unlovable I was and how I had been rejected. This is a story, or it's an analogy, that God used through the prophet Ezekiel, and I'm going to read it from the message. On the day you were born, your umbilical cord was not cut. 
you weren't bathed and cleaned up, you weren't rubbed with salt, you weren't wrapped in a baby blanket, no one cared for you, no one did one thing to care for you tenderly in these ways, and you were thrown out into a vacant lot and left there, dirty and unwashed, a newborn that nobody wanted. Does that, I mean, that just screams of abandonment, rejection, and unlovability. The picture here is a person without God and without hope in this world. That's the picture. And then I came by, God says. I saw you miserable and bloody. I said to you, lying there, helpless and filthy, live. Grow up like a plant in the field. And you did. You grew up. I took care of you. I dressed you and protected you. I promised my love and entered the covenant of marriage with you. I, God, the master, gave my word. You became mine. I gave you a good bath, washing off all that old blood and anointed you with aromatic oils. I dressed you in a colorful gown. I put leather sandals on your feet. I gave you linen blouses and a fashionable wardrobe of expensive clothing. I adorned you with jewelry. I placed bracelets on your wrists, fitted you with a necklace, emerald rings, sapphire earrings, and a diamond tiara. You were provided with everything precious and beautiful, with exquisite clothes and elegant food, garnished with honey and oil. You were absolutely stunning. You were a queen. You became world famous, a legendary beauty brought to perfection by my adornments, the decree of God, the master. This picture, now he's speaking to the nation of Israel, but I believe it, it really applies to every individual. And if you, if you follow the analogy of Israel all the way through into the New Testament, the nation of Israel was an analogy. I mean, it was true and it happened in real history, but it was also an analogy of the relationship that God wants to have with the church. And he does that through individual people, you and me. And this position that we oftentimes find ourselves in, we see ourselves as that rejected, unlovable, abandoned child. I remember a kid saying, oh man, he's got a face only a mother could love, talking about somebody else. And I remember my response was, well, at least his mother loves him. And that sense of unlovability, we oftentimes carry and we hide from people because we think if you really knew who I am, what I've done, you would not love me. But God knows. And it hasn't dampened his love in the slightest for us. He doesn't care who has rejected you. He doesn't care who despises you. He says, live. And he brings, in a personal way, his spirit and the life of Jesus Christ into us individually to bring about that life. He says, I want your life. He knows your true value. He already paid the price to purchase you. He loves you and he wants you. And we need to quit believing the lie 
that the enemy of our soul has told us for so long that we are unlovable, unworthy, and of no value. I'll end it right here with a prayer. You can choose to uh, agree with this, take it as part of your own prayer, and do with it as you will. Dear God, I recognize that my life has been a mess, especially when I try to live it my way. I really do want the true life that you offer, the life that Jesus came to give, the life of righteousness, peace, and joy. I have such a hard time believing that your will for me is good. Please help me understand and believe your love for me. Please show me your love in a way that I can understand and accept. I renounce the selfish life that I have lived in the past, and I ask you to help me to truly come alive and live each day the eternal kind of life you give in this body. I know I can't do it in my own strength, so I have to ask you to work in me to will and to act to accomplish your will in me. God, I often have desires for the wrong things, for the things that lead to death. I need you to put within me new desires. Help me to resist and overcome the desires to do the things that are not in harmony with your life and your will for me. Thank you, God, for being ready to give and forgive. I believe your promise. I believe your love for me. I accept your love and your spirit with my whole heart. I am your man and your woman to do with as you please. Thank you, Jesus, for what you did on my behalf so that I can have this life I truly want. And it's in your name that I make these requests to you. Amen. Thanks for listening in today. If you enjoyed this podcast, make sure to subscribe so you don't miss any upcoming episodes. And for more information on TRC Ministries or to contact us, go to www.regenerationcenter.org.